The views and opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of this station, JVC Broadcasting Management, or its sponsors. Welcome to Crime and Justice Radio, where we talk all things crime, justice, mayhem, and the courts with expert insiders and legal outcasts. My name is Aida Leisenring. I'm here with Bruce Barquette. You're on trial right now, and you still managed to come down here and do the radio show, which is my, pretty, my, my, pretty awesome. My first trial since 2019. Well, it's in, I can't talk about it too much, obviously, but it's in a local court, and um, it's just wild to be back in the courtroom. I can't wait to actually participate in the proceedings. It's a federal case, I can say that much, so we don't get to do much during the jury selection process. Big difference between state and federal courts, one of many of them. Uh, federal court, right, you get to talk to the jurors, interview them, chat with them, ask them questions. Federal court, you kind of sit there while the judge does that. And then uh, we open next Monday. So I'll be back next Monday, but that'll be after a real day in court. You have like a serious trial going on. I have a hearing tomorrow, but the good news is I don't think I'll be required to wear a mask, whereas well, you may not have had... Well, I'll, let, I'll, let's not go there okay. because we don't want to offend anybody. But, but I'll tell uh, you this. I will, uh, I'll tell you this. The last time I had a hearing, it was all masked up. And the detective was sort of annoying me on the stand. So I forced him to wear that big kind of clear visor, like dog after surgery helmet. <laughs> <laughs> so, and when he took his, when he took his mask business. off, I, I found out he had a, a mustache. <laughs> anyway. Look, um, uh, speaking of just absolute ridiculous COVID policy, which is actually sort of relevant today because... Well, can I... Yes. Go ahead. Um, no, no, no. I'll, I'll, let's well, start off by saying this. I support Lee Zeldin for governor, not because I like everything he does, but because I think the opposite choice is insane. And I've given Mr. Zeldin and his campaign a decent amount of money uh, to help him along. That said, what we're going to talk about today is something that I think he has proposed that he has proposed, should, and I think it's crazy. You, know, you should threaten not to vote if you think this is crazy. But here's it's the, insane. Here's but the it moment, with the, the start, moment of right. hypocrisy, and Go this ahead. is actually not just true to Lee Zeldin. Let's be honest. This is almost true to every single politician out there, which is why I can't really stand politicians. But Lee Zeldin in August stated of Kathy Hochul, deja vu, every 30, every 30 days, Hochul unilaterally bypasses the legislature and extends her self-claimed COVID emergency powers, which she has used to advance her rampant pay-to-play corruption and other abuses of power. He also indicated to the New York, a New York Times reporter that did a Q&A with him, um, and he really was talking about the election fraud claims. And he said, well, let me answer. What I stated then is what I still say today. My concern has been about a constitutional question. You have non-state legislative actors who were, in the name of a pandemic, changing how an election is administered. You can't do that under the United States Constitution. It's a constitutional question. And he went on to say, there will be more elections that will come up. There will be more natural disasters. There will be more hurricanes. There might be a health emergency. The way the United States Constitution provides this is that state legislature sets the election. And yet, 
and and he goes on about that. But you see my point. He seems to be anti-bypassing state laws and legislature by using emergency powers in states of emergency, which apparently well, we have constantly. Uh, that, yeah, no, and that part that's part of his election uh, denial. Um, campaign, right, but I was looking at just, the reasoning. No, and well, the reasoning there is actually absurd too because. Uh, I won't go down that path with him. Let's the focus, rabbit hole. Bruce, focus. focus. But <laughs> it, it, it that angers me about his policy as well. Like Trump lost not once but okay, twice. Focus. Let's move on, right? <laughs> he actually dispels that that theory in the rest of the Q and A. It is um, what he has promised now is, and this is a quote from him, um, what, I, what I'm committing to do is what Kathy Hochul refuses to do. And the very first day that I'm in office, immediately after being sworn in as the next governor of the state of New York, I'll be declaring, quote unquote, a crime emergency. Uh, and then he says that what he's going to do after he declares the, quote unquote, crime emergency is suspend the bail system that the legislature enacted, suspend the discovery system that the legislature enacted, and fire the district attorney in, Man- Bragg. in Manhattan who was elected in a free and fair election. Uh, and now the reason why I said COVID, this COVID is to blame for this in some ways, because two years ago when this all started and I was railing against the COVID mandates that they fired people who didn't take vaccines, they told you you couldn't touch somebody else's tennis balls you weren't allowed to rake traps on golf courses you couldn't swim they chained over basketball uh hoops insane policies that was by edict by cuomo and i said the government does not give up power once they start down this road of declaring an emergency and by edict saying you were going to do this you can't do that i said it's not going to stop well, now all my Democratic friends, I hope you're happy because Lee Zeldin's going to get elected and he's going to suspend the discovery reform under an emergency. Let's he's going to send suspend the new bail reform under the state of emergency because government doesn't give back power. But you know you have to blame for that? Not Lee Zeldin. You have Cuomo and Hochul who started down this path of edicts and emergency powers and abusing it. And I'll say to Lee Zeldin, and I, I actually was with him about a week ago, less than a week ago, and I'll say to him again, if you want to change the bail system, go back to the legislature. If you want to change the discovery system, go back to the legislature. The legislature in the state of New York passed a system. You may not like it. You may think it's bad. You don't get to change it by fake, by a fake emergency you, about you, crime. You, you there really? is no, let me finish. There is no crime emergency. I remember, I was a prosecutor in the late 80s and early 90s. When New York City was suffering 3,000 murders a year, Brooklyn had 1,000 all by themselves. Nassau County and Suffolk County had hundreds. And we that may have been an emergency. The uptick in crime, which is significant, and there are many problems for it, does not fall into a state of emergency. And you can't simply wipe out legislation on, on a campaign slogan. Right, it but is you're, you're arguing. Insane. You're arguing what you consider emergency. No, no, no. I'm arguing. Or I guess you're arguing that not every emergency is an emergency that rises to. To the extent that a governor can use his emergency powers to suspend the law. And what, frankly, Cuomo and Hochul did that, to me, 
bothered me the most wasn't so much the mandating, you know, this or that. It was it was the suspension of speedy trial rights, the dis- suspension of all these criminal rights, right? Uh, the, uh, criminal uh, justice right yeah. that left people languishing in jail for years, for years and years and years. Which we're going to talk about Rikers and people that have been languishing uh, you know, in jail yeah. in a moment. But I want to say this because you're you're making a constitutional argument, and that's what. Ironically, uh, Lee Zeldin said to the New York Times, he said, the New York State Constitution, we know in New York, we don't have recall elections. This is with respect to firing uh, Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg. He says, but when they crafted the New York State Constitution, they specifically gave the governor the authority to remove a district attorney who refuses to enforce the law. And the New York Times kind of corrected that in italics saying the New York State Constitution gives the governor authority to initiate proceedings to move some officials with due process. Um, But here's the thing. Alvin Bragg, as a district attorney, has the discretion to say, I'm not going to go after these kind of crimes. I'm going to focus on those kind of crimes instead, whether you agree with his policies or not. Um, All prosecutors have discretion to go after cases, go after certain matters, how they handle sentencing, how they handle bail. And that's what every single district attorney has done. Well, I I think they have the right to to prioritize um, uh, where they're going to put their money and resources. They don't, I don't think, uh, have the uh, authority to ignore wholesale sections of the penal law, which is what Bragg started to do. That, to me, was flagrantly wrong. I don't want to call it unconstitutional, but he did not have the authority to say, I'm no longer enforcing. Well, how about, but, but I'm no what lo- if I- Let me finish. I'm no longer enforcing uh, these sections of the penal code. But he can, because when you put it in a different perspective, right, you're looking at the penal codes that matter to you. So it's all subjective. And I say this because if a DA said, I'm no longer enforcing prostitution cases, most of these women don't want to be prostitutes. They were trafficked. They were assaulted at a young age. They were tricked into it. You would say, hallelujah. I really appreciate that. Good move. Well, I would Instead, well, ahead. not you specifically. <laughs> I'm rooting for that. <laughs> you know, the record be clear. I mean, and I think what he's saying is like certain de minimis crimes that aren't violent don't warrant our current focus and, uh, you know, our funding and our uh, energy, we're going to focus more on murders because uh, the shootings are up, you know, violent crime is up and we're not going to worry about um, nonviolent crimes. He, he, he absolutely has the discretion to do that. And like I said, it's been done again and again and again. People don't like the crimes that he picked. Uh, well, I, and I, that's I, where the complaint I, lies. I, I think the complaint lies in the absolute bar or the wholesale rejection of prosecuting certain classes of offenses at all. He has the discretion to say we're going to give these people with these classes of offenses with certain criminal histories, depending on the facts of the case. I think he did do that. No, what he, he's backed off to that point. But what he initially did is said, we're no longer going to prosecute these cases and listed off a number of uh, uh, penal law sections. What were they, like so, turnstile jumping? Well, some of it was turnstile jumping, and a number of it was other crimes, other theft crimes that he viewed as petty. Look, I recall when the death penalty existed in New York. Which your buddy Lee Zeldin wishes would return. I, 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 I understand. <laughs> it's another thing that's not going to happen that I don't support that I he don't does. Know, emergency but, powers. Well, <laughs> <laughs> well, here, here's, what, here, here's our choice. It's either Lee Zeldin or Kathy Hochul. Either I, I, deal with deal Sophie's with his, cho- Sophie's choice, yeah, either, as my dear friend Emily Kane would say. Either deal with the the um, 
ridiculous proposition that he's going to suspend the criminal procedure law, which is essentially what he's saying, that'll last about 10 minutes. Any judge in the state will strike it down. Or you deal with Kathy Hochul and more COVID mandates, more vaccine mandates, and our 13% top marginal tax rate with the highest rate in the country with more people fleeing New York state than any other state in the country, any other state in the country. We've lost more of our population because anybody who's successful, who can simply leaves. The only emergency in New York right now, rats. Well, uh, uh, rats, they're everywhere. Well, uh, maybe we could have death penalty for rats, but the reason why I mentioned the death penalty is because, um, Rikers Robert, Island is turning into well it's awful we'll get to Rikers Island in a minute Robert Johnson in when the death penalty came out said I'm not seeking the death penalty for any offenses period Dennis Dillon who I work for said um, he issued who's Robert, a pop- who's Robert Johnson Robert DA Johnson in Bronx? he was the DA in the yeah. Bronx and there was a police officer uh, shooting where a police officer was shot and murdered uh, in the Bronx and everybody already knew he wasn't going to seek the death penalty the attorney general at the time, Robert Vacco, stepped in and said, we're taking over this case, it removed him from the case. It went to the Court of Appeals, and the Court of Appeals sustained Vacco's uh, right to do that, and they went ahead and uh, sought the death penalty against that individual. The individual ultimately ended up killing himself. Wait, 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 wait. you're speaking very quickly. I am. My brain is not catching up. The Court of Appeals ultimately said- Sustained Robert Vacco's um, Said to right. the Attorney General, you you're ha- allowed to intervene you, here. You're, in, you're allowed to intervene Under what here. basis? Because, uh, well, under the basis the Attorney General has that authority to do that, and- that Robert Johnson went, he simply went too far by saying, I'm never imposing the death penalty. The reason why I mentioned Dennis Dillon is the number of death penalty cases that were started by Dennis Dillon in the 10 years that the New York had the death penalty, exactly zero. The number of death penalty cases in uh, out of Suffolk County, which is a, obviously a neighboring county on Long Island, three people on death row from Suffolk County. Dennis Dillon, Dennis said, issued a policy that said, we're going to have the death penalty. We'll use it. It'll be rare, if ever, when we need it to protect society. So he had a policy that indicated he was exercising his discretion. But every single person I, who knew Dennis knew that he was never seeking the death penalty. I Robert can, Johnson just I, went too far, like Alvin Bragg. I can did. tell you didn't get to litigate in court today. You're, 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 you're I'm all wound up, but I'm really I'm blasting. I can't even get a breath in or a word. You got some words um, in. Well, thank you, Bruce. I'm going to get this word in now because we're speaking about the death penalty. We don't have a death penalty in New York, but we may as well call Rikers Island death row. And I say that because 17 people have now died this year on Rikers Island. I believe it's the most amount of deaths since, I don't know what year, I thought it was 2003 potentially. And the photographs that are coming out of there are horrific. So Eric Tavira was 28 years old. He used a bed sheet to hang himself this Saturday. And here's the crazy part. He was in a mental observation unit at GRVC on Rikers Island, um, 17th person to die in custody this year. And so when you're in a mental observation unit, it means you're mentally unstable, that you need help, that you need observation by trained professionals. And by the way, he is very loved. He has a big family who is grieving his death. He struggled with schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. And he was at Rikers for allegedly assaulting a police officer 
when he was transported to the Metropolitan Hospital to seek treatment for his mental condition. So this guy, you know, was placed into Rikers by some judge probably saying, well, I don't know if he's crazy and violent when really he was uh, probably a glorified, you know, resisting arrest while being transported to um, a mental unit. I don't know the facts of that case, but he should never have died at Rikers. And oh, well, and remember last year, I think there were 13 deaths last year. So we've, and, and we've that surpassed was them. Already, and it's, you know, Not halfway through October. Uh, it really is a a horror uh, of a place. And this, this you have to take that in conjunction this with... This is the deadliest year since 2013. You, you when have, twice as many people were being held there. That's right. what's nuts. Well, and you, you have to take into account um, the conditions of our local jails, Rikers included, and maybe Rikers in particular, when you're talking about the bail system. Because what the Republicans are saying and what people like Lee Zeldin are saying and so many others is that we need to have more people detained pre-trial. Rikers Island can't handle the people it has now. See if Lee Zeldin's children were wrongfully accused of a crime, had bail set, how comfortable he would be with them sitting in Rikers. It, 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 Ask him that. No, well, well um, because it's it's basically a. I don't a think he's going to speak Russian, to me anymore after today. <laughs> well, apparently he's got your vote <laughs> and support. Still has so. my vote. Um, but I, I wouldn't if I had a loved one that was placed at Rikers. I'd probably. I shouldn't say this on air. I'm like, I'd rob a bank to get them out if I needed to. No, no, you you, <laughs> like, post any bill, but the, the, that is... And not what, just, and, and we say 17 deaths, but beyond that, there's been so many injuries, so many assaults, so many people that have been hospitalized that have had permanent physical damage, um, brain damage. It's And the it's conditions beyond, where people, right? people are being housed in pens with feces all over the floor and walls, not being fed, not being given medical care. It's the, the conditions are truly deplor, deplorable. And the reason why people are being held there is because they can't make the bail. There's very, very, very few people are in there for homicides or crimes for which they are remanded without bail whatsoever. These other people are there because they're simply too poor to post the bail. And you're right. If you're, if any of our family members were ever, God forbid, incarcerated uh, or arrested and charged with a crime, we would have the resources, uh, not unlimited, but but we would have the resources. We'd find the resources. We'd find to get the resources to post the bail for them, almost no matter the number. And it, it is simply not fair to have people with resources being able to get out of the system pre-trial and people without the resources uh, having to be stuck in there. And for people who are yelling about cashless bail, I'm in federal court right now. Uh, come to the federal system. There isn't cash bail. There just isn't. It's available, but it's never used. The judges, pretrial services, and the U.S. Attorney's Office and the defense attorneys fashion bail packages to allow people out or keep them in. And federal, depend- federal defendants tend to come to court. Well, they do. They, they they do come to court, and they don't commit all the crimes. And if they do, they get they get uh, yeah. detained afterwards. Uh, it is it really is a, a, a misnomer to say that bail reform is somehow the cause of all the problems that exist. And same for discovery reform. It's finally defense attorneys in in criminal cases get what attorneys in civil cases get every day of the week, which is witness statements and the ability to look at all the paperwork in the case before somebody goes on trial for their life. And by the way, just uh, 
I want to follow up on last week where Trump was ordered to be deposed last Wednesday on the E. Jean defamation lawsuit in which he claimed that he raped her at a Bergdorf Goodman. I know it's a totally change of pace, but he actually was deposed. So the deposition went through. Obviously, it's it's sealed. Um, it's sealed, not because it's Trump, not because it's her, not because it's special, because it ordinarily would be sealed right. until such time where, where it is unsealed. And we forgot to mention our incredible, incredible guest coming up shortly in a few minutes. Um, Michael Medwed. Di- uh, right. No, Excuse me, Daniel Medwed. Daniel Medwed, the <laughs> professor and, uh, of Northeastern University, Author of Bard, Why the Innocent Can't Get Out of Prison. Um, he's an amazing resource. Uh, you know, went to it, Yale College, Harvard Law School, teaches, uh, is a leading authority on criminal law. And we're going to find out why it takes forever, if at all, for innocent people, people to walk well, out of and, prison. And that's post-conviction, right? That's not pre-trial, like we've been talking about for the last... 20 minutes or so it's post uh conviction after the direct appeals are lost a fascinating book and a fascinating guest and an important topic for everybody we'll be back back. with professor medwed in a few minutes welcome back to crime and justice radio my name is aida leisenring and i'm here with bruce barquette and we're both going to introduce the next guest who's unbelievable and has such fascinating information on one of our favorite topics. Professor Daniel Medwed, Harvard Law graduate and University Distinguished Professor of Law and Criminal Justice at Northeastern University, a leading authority on criminal justice issues and the author of this incredible book called Bard, Why Innocent People Can't Get Out of Prison. So it, it is a great book. I'm holding it in my hands, and it's not just a history or a lesson on criminal procedure law post-conviction. It's also fascinating. From two people who know what a good story is, John Grisham said this, in our screwed up legal system, it's fairly easy to convict an innocent person and send them to prison. Tragically, and as Daniel Medwed explained so clearly in Bard, it's almost impossible to get them out. Punishing the innocent is not just a problem in other places. We do it every day in America. And Sister Helen Prejean from uh, Dead, Dead Man, Man Walking. Walking, we know she knows a good tale when she sees it. By blending tales of real life wrongful convictions with straightforward explanations of the legal procedures, Medwed's Bard demystifies the mysterious path for the innocent after trial. His clear and engaging writing style makes the topic accessible to anyone interested in the hazards of our criminal justice system a must read i wholeheartedly agree welcome dan we appreciate you coming on welcome professor thank you so much i and bruce you left out the most important part which is that i'm a fan of both of your work <laughs> <laughs> indeed we wanted that coming from your lips yeah, exactly exactly uh, look oh uh, first of all you've got to put in a good word with us with sister helen we've been trying to get her on the show for a year and she seems less interested than she should be uh, I will write her. I will vouch for you. I mean, Bruce, I told you this before. I saw you in Kings County Court 20 years ago 
winning that case for was it Lorenzo Branch Lamont, Lamont Branch Lamont, Lamont. Loren- Lamont. right Lorenzo was the uh, his brother yes um, yeah so no, I was, will certainly put in a good word for you thanks very much so so what I mean look those of us. The three of us could sit around, and drink beer, and talk about this topic all night. The, the system and values finality more than it does truth, and so forth. You've written a great book that explains the process and the limits of post-conviction after the person's been convicted. Why did you write the book? You know, I think a lot of it, and I don't know if you guys have had this experience. I think at this point, most of us know why innocent people get convicted. Eyewitnesses screw up. The police induce people to falsely confess to crimes they didn't commit. Prosecutors hide evidence. Police do a lot of bad things. Uh, There are jailhouse informants. There's forensic science that is flawed at best and and dubious. Um, So we have a sense of why this happens on the front end. But I think there's a little bit of a mystique about what happens afterwards. You read these stories in the newspaper about the innocent person freed, you know, coming out of the prison gates with their arms aloft. Uh, you know, a smile uh, from ear to ear. And I think it creates the misimpression um, that it's easy to free the innocent, that that once you have the evidence, judges and prosecutors are willing to listen and, and take a close look. And as you guys both know, and I certainly know from my experience, that's far from the case. Um, early in my career, I spent four years working with Will Hellerstein at Brooklyn Law School. Uh, we had a small Innocence Project. We called it the Second Look Program, where we investigated and litigated cases of innocence involving New York State inmates. And time and time again, we'd find good evidence. There would be new witnesses who'd come out of the woodwork, or key prosecution witnesses would recant, and we couldn't get back into court, let alone convince anyone to free our guy. Why so was that? Really precipitous. I think it was a combination of things, Aida. I think part of it, and the book talks about this a lot, the trial is the main event. The Supreme Court has has said that um, in a famous 2017 opinion. The trial is the main event. It's mentioned twice in the Constitution. There is no reference to the right of appeal in the Constitution. That's just a function of state law. Um, there is a sort of indirect reference to habeas corpus, which is an, uh, obviously a very important post-conviction remedy, uh, that the writ of habeas corpus shall not be suspended except in time of war and rebellion. But the Constitution doesn't really spell out the post-trial path. So I think this idea of the trial as the main event and the appeal and the post-conviction process as the undercard pervades the entire system. That presumption of innocence, once it's converted to a presumption of guilt, becomes really sticky to overturn. So I think that's the first thing, right? Um, That we believe that the trial is where truth, where justice uh, emerges. I think the second part, and, and I wonder what you two think about this, I think all of the institutional players, most of them, have an interest, a vested interest in keeping a lid on these cases, right? Um, Trial judges don't really want to take a look back for fear that they might have messed up. Prosecutors are sometimes scared, or not sometimes, often scared uh, of it. Almost always. Almost always. You know, you're a trial lawyer, you're you're overworked, you're underpaid, you're trying to do the best you can. Yeah. You you might not want to admit a mistake either. There's only, I think there's only one of the three of us that was a prosecutor at some point in his career. And I can. It makes you a little more evil. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's a a sin for which I've, I've worked the last 30 years to make amends for. 
but I can it succeeded. <laughs> so thank you. So some some of my best friends still are, and I can tell you uh, from them and speaking to we all know judges and prosecutors. Prosecutors are afraid not of freeing this innocent person. What they're afraid of is the message it sends to jurors on tomorrow's trial, because right. by freeing more and more innocent people. What that has done is that it's created this impression that the system is not infallible. And when I was a prosecutor in the 80s, the system was infallible. Nobody got, an innocent person got convicted ever. It was a wild, you know, unicorn if it happened. And that was easy to deal with, especially in suburban juries who looked at you and said, here's what you're doing. We've, we've arrested this person. He did it and so well, forth. And, and even if you're, you know, I don't want to make it black or white, but if, even if you're a good prosecutor or bad prosecutor, a good prosecutor thinks he did right. A bad prosecutor yeah. doesn't want to get busted for doing wrong, but both believe exactly. they were convicting the right man. Yes. No, that, that's certainly, that's certainly true. And look, the, I mean, I, I want you to talk a little bit about the system because I run into, um, friends and colleagues all the time and not just lawyers non-lawyers who know what i do see stuff in the papers where cases have um have dealt with things uh have worked out well occasionally and they they are under the impression that the appellate process is just kind of another trial where an appellate court takes a look at the same evidence and that's not tell tell us what that's not the case obviously what is the case Exactly. So here's the, there's a misconception. There are a couple of misconceptions. I think the first is that people get off on technicalities, right? That that you're convicted at trial, but then because of some technical or procedural loophole, you know, the prison door magically opens and you're sprung. Nothing could be further from the truth. As you point out, Bruce, the direct appeal is very limited. You have a right to appeal your case once and once only to a higher court. And you can only address issues generally that were vetted at trial. You can't bring in new evidence. And even issues where there wasn't an objection or an offer of proof, those are typically called unpreserved for appellate review. So the direct appeal is not a forum to relitigate guilt or innocence. It's a forum to raise issues of legal error. Maybe the judge made a mistake in introducing evidence, something like that. But your chances of prevailing on a legal error are fairly small, in part because there's another doctrine called the harmless error doctrine. This one just galls me. And this doctrine says... Some of my clients want that to apply to them. They gave the money back. The drugs weren't actually sold. Nobody was, nobody was harmed. It was a harmless error. Exactly, right? You know, you, you, you missed with the shot, right? It's a harmless error. You know, the tree got a bullet, right? Um, you could see why a defendant might want that same concept, right? No one was harmed. Why am I being prosecuted? Uh, when they're convicted, appellate judges will say, well, you know, the prosecutor should have done this. The trial judge should have done that. But it's harmless in light of all this other evidence in the case. Um, here's some data from the Innocence Project that I find really alarming. Uh, back in 2010, the Innocence Project looked at its cases, and they tried to figure out not only what went wrong at trial, but what went wrong in the appellate process. Why did it take DNA years later to free these guys? Why weren't there these errors corrected on appeal? And so just take one potential error, something that we're all familiar with. Um, prosecutorial misconduct during closing argument. You know, we've all seen this. Bruce, you never did it when you were a prosecutor. I'm Absolutely sure. not. We've all seen it. <laughs> never, right? Never. So, but, we, but we've all seen it, that appeal to emotion, yes. the appeal to patriotism, vouching for a witness. You know, this is, this is, these are errors. 
in 30 cases, let me make sure I have my data right. Yeah, I think it was in 30 cases where guys were later freed by DNA, proven to be innocent beyond all shadow of a doubt, they had raised prosecutorial misconduct during closing argument as an issue on appeal. In, in those 30 cases, the court said there was an error. They all agreed that that, that was a mistake. The prosecution of, prosecutor shouldn't have done it. But guess this, get this. In 17 of those 30 cases, the court went on to say, but because the evidence of guilt was so overwhelming here, the conviction should stand. Now, these are 17 cases, mind you, where DNA later proved that the guy was actually innocent. But on appeal, the courts looked at this evidence. They looked at the trial transcript and they thought, evidence of guilt, overwhelming evidence of guilt, no harm, no foul. In 17 of the 30 sample cases where we know the people were actually innocent, DNA exonerated them, the appellate court said, too bad, um, the evidence was overwhelming in your case, which which generally it's going to be if you get convicted, right? Um, yeah. The other thing with DNA, I, I, I interned before 2006 at Cardozo with Barry Sheck and Vanessa Potkin. Oh, and yeah. I just remember being fascinated as a law student that it would take that many years to even locate the DNA evidence, right? And it was fascinating how like, there's not a more sophisticated methodology to find a, you know, a woman claimed she was raped, and she, in in most cases, really was. They took a rape kit, and this happened to be in 1989. And let's say it's in, you know, a small town outside of Atlanta, Georgia, you literally have to call the precinct, call the court, call the clerk, beg someone to go take a look, not just any look, a very thorough look, the kind of look you would take. They'll come back. They may not return your call. And it just takes years to uncover this kind of evidence. Just to obtain the biological evidence. It should have been preserved and easily available. Yeah. No, I, it's amazing, isn't it? You know, even those states, most states have laws that say they, that this evidence has to be retained. The procedures really vary, and they're not always clear on what that means. And I'm sure you've had this experience where the evidence in one county is located at the police department, in another county it's located somewhere else. Yes, third county, it's lost. It's in a basement. Office. It's been flooded. Yeah. Uh, oh, we we have a we have a case like that right now um, where the, right? they lost. Um, Rensselaer County had a flood and lost all these records. But mo- next next up, I mean, I, a couple of things that we want to talk about. Er, the other great one of the misconceptions is that there's DNA in every case, so you can always prove who really did it and who really didn't do it. Is, is that correct? It's not. And, and sort of here's why. When you, when you take a step back, um, very few types of crimes lend themselves to situations where the perpetrator leads biological evidence at the crime scene that could be subjected to DNA testing. You know, your average purse snatching, you know, there's not going to be any blood or saliva or anything like that left by the perpetrator at the scene. So um, people estimate um, that DNA evidence exists in only about 10 to 20 percent of cases to begin with, uh, usually in Aida, you mentioned this, um, sexual assault cases and some murders. So that's all that exists at the front end, right? Then you have to trust that the police will find it, that they'll preserve it, that it's not destroyed or degraded over time. And so that percentage diminishes considerably after someone's convicted. So, so the, 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 uh, um, 
the availability of DNA evidence is actually quite slim. But when you, whenever you read one of these accounts of the innocent person freed through DNA, it creates this misimpression that DNA is everywhere, that DNA is this magic bullet, as I call it in the, in the book, that is, if you can just find it, it, it will free the innocent person. Um, I think it's a double-edged sword, and I don't know what you two think about this, because on the one hand, it's great. You know, we've had 376 or so documented DNA exoneration since 1989, and we've been able to study these cases. That's fantastic. But it, but has it raised the bar for proving innocence so that your typical case where there's no DNA evidence is much harder to prove than in the pre-DNA days? I don't know. Well, uh, here, I'll, I'll, my quick take on that is it did initially— it made it impossible for people, by the way, like Marty Tankliff, who didn't have DNA, who yeah. sends his regards. Um, I love Marty Tankliff. What a great guy, a great lawyer. I, 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 he's one of your colleagues. Yes, he is. He's, he's with our firm now. And says so, specifically, tell the professor I, I said, said hello. hello right. so, so, well, you know what? Tell Marty I say hello. I have so much respect for him. He's such a good person. So guy. In 2002, he didn't have any DNA, and nobody wanted to talk to him. Right or talk to him. Nobody wanted to hear from the evidence that we developed that he was actually innocent. Um, so it did hurt initially, but I think what's happened is that the kind of the snowball has gone further down the hill, and it, it DNA has opened everybody's eyes up to the fact that there really are wrongly convicted individuals in prison, and we recognize that DNA is the tip of the iceberg of the wrongly convicted. Uh, not the whole body of, of innocent people in prisons. So I think it's helped now. So when you have real evidence, and although there's not DNA, I think judges are more inclined to look at it today because of the DNA exonerations than they were, say, 20 years ago when Marty's claim first began. Um, but to, to walk through your book a little bit more, um, the next thing that you talk about, and this is what's so great about the book, it's, it, you walk through the appeal, and then the post-judgment, Talk about habeas corpus, which is getting released in the federal courts because you're actually innocent. Surely the federal courts, if you can prove that you're innocent, will let you go, right? <laughs> One would hope, right, Marty? And I, you, know, you would hope, you would think. So, so the great writ of habeas corpus, which we inherited from England and a lot of people have heard about, is a vehicle that allows you to compel the government to explain or justify why they have the body. That's what habeas corpus means. You know, why do you have the body in custody? Why is the person being detained? So it's great because federal courts under a habeas corpus petition can look back at state convictions and determine whether the state messed up or not. In theory, it's this great mechanism for ensuring justice at the state level and also ensuring a level of uniformity across states. You know, you get the same justice in New Jersey as in New York when it comes to fundamental questions. The problem, I think, is that historically this writ, and even today, was designed to tackle constitutional or jurisdictional issues and not factual claims of guilt or innocence. And this really came to a head in a famous 1993 Supreme Court case called Herrera, where Herrera was arguing, hey, I'm innocent. It's, it's dubious whether, in fact, he's innocent, but essentially his brother had confessed to the crime and his brother had since died. And there were two guys who were willing to come forward and say, you know, the brother told me that he committed the crime that this man Herrera is on death row in Texas for. And the Supreme Court said that a freestanding claim of actual innocence in, in and of itself is not enough to get habeas relief. Not enough to get you off death row. 
as I recall. Not enough to get you off death row. Exactly. Even more. It's not enough to get you off death row. And I think it shocked a lot of people. And even today, when I talk about this, it shocks a lot of people to, to think, wait a second, you can be actually innocent in prison and you can't get a federal court to look at your case unless you happen to have some constitutional issue as well. Um, and that, in fact, um, being actually innocent in prison in and of itself apparently isn't a constitutional violation. Um, and when you explain it this way, it really is quite strong. People well, are listening to the show right now thinking you guys are all crazy. Right. Or like true. when a <laughs> potential new client comes in on behalf of a family member and makes a very compelling case for the innocence of their family member and you as an attorney ask about like the 440 motion that was filed and yeah. whether or not they included the claim and whether or not it's been preserved for appeal and they might have no case. You feel like a very bad lawyer telling people what the law is. Um, yeah, exactly. People look at you cross-eyed like, what, 440? What are you talking about? Right. But thank, thankfully, believers like you and Bruce and you. and and me and, and many others are. Um, are, are able to say, you know, screw the law. Let's figure out a way around it and um, and, and get this and that's person. That's what you guys do. You know, I mentioned this great case from Bruce. Bruce, you know, you're too you're too modest here. You, this Loren, the, the the Lamont Branch case from 20 years ago. That was a 440 motion, wasn't it? It, it was, but you know, look, I, we don't want to go down that road. We don't have a minute left. I want to talk some more about your okay. book. But he had to take a okay. plea to a to a fictional gun count so that he couldn't that's sue nice. Brooklyn to get out of prison. I so about that. Yeah. Well, yes. we have. Under a minute left, we're going to ask you a tough question. You talk about a path forward in your book, yeah. and you mentioned, you mentioned that the title is Prosecutors with Convictions, the Case for Internal Review Units. Can you explain that in sure. 40 seconds? 40 seconds. So the idea is, you know, prosecutors are supposed to be ministers of justice. At least that's what the theory says, dating back to the 19th century. They don't lose as long as justice is served. So they could set up internal conviction integrity units to look at potentially flawed convictions in their jurisdictions and do the right thing. As of the end of 2021, there were 92 of these in the country. Some are good, some are bad, and the word isn't uh, yet out on a few others. But that well, could be a path forward. That, that Dan, I wish we had more time. We don't. I, I wish we did, too. Thanks so much. People should run, not walk, to get barred. <laughs> Why the You're laughing. It's a great book, and if you're interested in this topic, and our listeners certainly are, you should buy the book and read it. It's a quick read. It's fascinating, and you'll learn a ton. Thanks for coming on. We'll talk. Thank at, you, Bruce. Thank you, Aida. We'll, Take care. We'll see everybody next week for Take more Crime and Justice Radio. Um, looking forward to a week of trial. We'll see you later. The views and opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of this station, JVC Broadcasting Management, or its sponsors.